Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. Every once in a while, I'll get a little bit nostalgic. I'll just reflect for a little bit. What was it like growing up in the Herring household? I'll just kind of think about that for a little bit, and I realize that so much of my family life centered around this thing called the church, and it's because my dad was the pastor. And we were always at church, it seemed like, just all the time. Sunday mornings, we were the first ones there. We'd have Sunday school and the worship service. We'd be the last ones to leave after the service. We'd come back Sunday night, and there'd be either a worship service or a Bible study of some kind. We were there on Wednesday nights. And we'd usually have a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. There was youth group that would take place occasionally. And we were just there all the time. During the summer, there'd be special occasions where there were revival meetings. And uh, it just seemed like the, the church was so infused with everything we did. And when I was growing up, I, I don't think I appreciated that spiritual heritage. I mean, there were certain things about church I really liked. The youth group was fun, and, and I loved the church potluck dinners. There's just nothing like a church potluck dinner, some of the best cooking in the world. But I realized that during the service many times, I, I really wouldn't pay close attention. And often I was so tired that, that I would hope that the opening prayer and the closing prayer of the service would be really long. And oftentimes it was because it would give me an opportunity just to close my eyes and kind of get a little sleep while they were praying, especially if there was a long list of people to pray for. And that was kind of my experience as, as church and I had misunderstandings about what church is supposed to be about. And I think it's a misunderstanding that a lot of people these days have as well. I think a lot of people have the wrong idea about church. They either think of church as being like a a meeting that you go to, you talk about going to church on Sunday, that kind of thing, or else it's a building, you're driving along and, and you see a church building, you say, that's a church over there, and that's how I viewed church growing up. It was either a meeting or it was a building that I was attending. What I did not understand is that we are supposed to be the church, and there's a world of difference between going to church and being the church. It wasn't until I graduated from Bible college that I think I came to understand some of this. I graduated from Bible college. I moved to Columbus, Ohio. I was a student at Ohio State, and I got involved with the church there that helped me see it completely differently. I was living at the time with six or seven, sometimes even eight guys. We were all living together. We all went to the same church. We lived in this really, really big house. And we used to have Bible studies in our house. And we would have meals and we would have communion there. And, and I started to view these guys that I was living with as real brothers in the faith. And we would talk to one another about what we were reading in our Bibles and and we would confront one another if, if something wasn't good or something wasn't right. And, and we were just serious about this thing called the faith. And as a result of the relationship that I developed with these, many of these guys ended up in my wedding party. Let me show you a picture from my wedding of the guy side of the equation. There were just as many girls in our wedding as well. Four of us 
ended up being pastors. By the way, I'm the one in the middle with hair. Uh, the one guy to one of my sides there, depending on whether it's the right or left from the screen, is my twin brother, kind of ugly. But four of us became pastors because we got a vision of a church that could be different, that it wasn't about a meeting, it wasn't about a building, it was about a family. The Apostle Paul talked about it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 and 2. He was writing a young man in the faith named Timothy who was a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was located in what is now modern-day Greece. And Paul was telling Timothy how he's supposed to treat people in the church, especially as the leader of the church. And in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, we read, do not rebuke an older man, Paul told Timothy, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and with all propriety, younger women as sisters. In other words, he was telling Timothy, we're to view the people in the church as part of the family, spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And I think this is what God has had in mind all along for what the church is supposed to be like. Many of you, when you were growing up, perhaps memorized the Lord's Prayer. I know I did. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Notice that it begins with our Father. Jesus was talking with his disciples, and together they were going to view God as their Father. But what's the implication of that? It means that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that if God is our Father and we are children of God, we just sang a song about being sons and daughters of God. He's our Father, our Heavenly Father, and it means we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are a lot of implications to this viewpoint of church. Now, my takeaway today is this, that we are family. It's just as simple as that. I'd like for us to begin really viewing the church as being part of family. You see, you treat family a little bit differently than others. When I was growing up, I didn't always get along with my brothers, but if somebody outside the family came after one of the brothers, we would stand up for each other. I remember occasion where this happened with one of my older brothers with whom I didn't get along, but when someone outside the family wanted to come after me, he was ready to stand up for me. When we were growing up, we had kids over to our house all the time, but when it was time for dinner or whatever, we dismissed all the other kids because it was a time for us to be together as a family with God as our Father. Now, I recognize that this image of God being a father is, for some of you, really hard because maybe you were raised in a context where your father wasn't loving, or maybe he was abusive, or maybe your father was absent all the time, you know, or maybe you were even raised in a context where you didn't have a father in the home when you were growing up, and so for you, perhaps, it's hard to get this image of God being a, a father and hard to relate to him in that way. In addition, I think some of you perhaps don't have a very good image of family life. And so when you hear that the church is supposed to be a family, a good image doesn't come to your mind. You think, well, my family wasn't a, a, a great family when I was growing up. It was really tough in my family. And so this image isn't very motivating for you. But what if we could view God as the father that we never had? What if we could view other believers in Christ as the brothers and sisters and as the family that we never had? What if you were part of a group of people that loved you and forgave you and you felt valued? Is it possible for us to experience church in an entirely different way where we celebrate God as our Father and we celebrate one another as ones with whom we are related? 
I want us to understand, again, we are family. Jesus, of course, understood this clearly, and he taught this idea to his disciples early on. In Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, Jesus was teaching in someone's home, and, and this was a little bit unusual in the Gospels, because usually Jesus would teach the crowds out in the open because there were so many gathered, but on a few occasions we read that Jesus was in, in someone's home. And in Mark 3, we have an example of this. And the home was crowded. His disciples were there. It was completely filled, the room where they were. And people were standing, it says, in the doorway listening to Jesus. On top of that, there were people outside as well. I envision a group of about 100 to 200 people all trying to hear Jesus. And from within this context, his family, Jesus' family showed up. And they couldn't get inside the house to see Jesus. And so they sent a message. But Jesus' response is really kind of unusual. Again, it's found in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 31. We read, Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now in these verses, Jesus affirmed this idea of a spiritual family, that that's what the church is. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our very brother. He is the son of God and God the son, so he's different than we are in terms of being children of God. And yet he's willing to call us part of his spiritual family. A scholar by the name of J.A. Brooks explains, Jesus' true family consists of those who respond positively to him rather than those who are physically related to him. The story also suggests that, part of being a, or that being a part of Jesus' family may require adjusting or even severing relationships with an earthly family. That sometimes a spiritual family needs to take precedence. Now, some of you may be bothered by this story because it seems like Jesus completely ignored his physical family. His mother is out there. It says his brothers and sisters are out there. They just want to see him, and yet Jesus completely ignores them. Now, we know from other places in the Bible that Jesus absolutely loved his family, and he would have known, of course, of the Ten Commandments that you honor your father and your mother. So what happened in this situation? Well, we learn a little bit earlier in this same chapter why Jesus did what he did. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, we read, then he, it's a reference to Jesus, then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. You see, they were coming to to restrain him, a scholar by the name of J.S. Brooks writes, the verb translated to take charge, or in our version, it's to restrain him, means to arrest. Evidently, they intended to seize Jesus and force him to return to Nazareth with them. Another scholar explains their actions in this way. This is not simply a failure to follow Jesus, but a positive and offensive repudiation that they were coming to get him. They had heard he was in Nazareth. 
They had heard that the disciples and Jesus had not even had the time to eat and they came and they wanted to arrest him, take him by force, bring him back home. Now, there are a couple things that may be shocking about this story to some of you. First of all, I think some of you are perhaps shocked by the idea that Jesus actually had brothers and sisters. We know that he had at least four brothers and we know he had at least two sisters. In fact, if you want to look up more about this in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, you see some of the names of Jesus' disciples. But that's kind of shocking for some of you to realize that Jesus was part of a big family. But another thing that's probably shocking to some of you is the fact that at this point in his ministry, even his own mother didn't believe in what he was doing. His brothers did not believe in what he was doing. And so on this occasion, Jesus knew that he could not acknowledge what they were about to do. Jesus knew that he had to be about his father's business. Of course, the first time Jesus used those words was when he was 12 in the temple, you remember. He said to his mother, don't you know, I have to be about my father's business. And here he was setting the priority of this spiritual family over the physical family. And by the way, if you doubt how Jesus' siblings viewed him, Consider John 7, verses 2 through 5, where we read, the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works or the miracles that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, if you do these miracles, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5 says, for even his brothers, or not even his brothers, believed in him. At this point in the story, now eventually we believe they did and two of his brothers ended up writing books in the New Testament, the books of James and Jude, who were both half-brothers of Jesus. But my focus here today is just this idea that we are family. And it raises two questions immediately in my mind, this concept of a family. The first one is this, how does someone become a part of the family of God? And the second question is how do we treat one another within the family of God. As to that first question, John, one of Jesus' closest friends, answered the question in John 1, verses 10 through 13. Speaking about Jesus, John wrote, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, through Jesus. Yet, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but, and here's the answer, To all who did receive him, he gave the right or the privilege to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Jesus acknowledged later in a couple chapters in John 3, the importance of being born again or born anew, or it could be translated born from on high. We all understand what a physical birth is like. You are born into a family, but it's essential for us to be born into a spiritual family if we're to be children of God, brothers and sisters of one another, and call our God, God our Father. And according to these verses, what's required, what says those who receive Jesus to those who believe in his name, to those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, they become children of God. In other words, we need to come to a point in our lives where we acknowledge our spiritual condition, our need to be delivered or saved because of sin that separates us from our Heavenly Father. It's a problem we cannot fix. We need a deliverer. And it's why Jesus sent his sinless son into the world to die in our place 
and for everything we've done wrong. He died and was buried. He was executed on our behalf. But he rose again from the dead, showing that the payment he had made on our behalf was accepted by God the Father. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we receive Jesus, believe in his name, then we become children of God and we are forgiven. But what's the implication then about how we're to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, I want to mention up front here that we're going to look at a few verses here and they're going to use the word brothers, but the use of these words in the Bible are a reference to brothers and sisters. In other words, oftentimes in the Bible, they were called brethren and it's a reference to both. And so when you read about brothers here in these verses, it's a reference to both. And I'd like to spell out our responsibilities to one another within the family of God using an acrostic, the word family. And don't worry, I'm gonna go very quickly through each of these points. The F in the word family stands for forgive one another. Our standing with God is based upon the fact that we have been forgiven of all of our sins through faith in Christ. And this requires that we view one another through the lens of forgiveness. And so in the book of Ephesians, we read we're to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. We have this responsibility to get along with one another. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 18, 21 and 22. We read, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother, and again, it applies to brothers and sisters, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. You might look at this and say, that's completely unreasonable to forgive like that, but this is how God has forgiven us. And so the F in family stands for we're to forgive one another. The A stands for show affection to one another. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 10, show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. The Greek word for family affection here is the word from which we get our English word Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. And so Paul was saying here that we need to view one another as brothers and sisters and have a family affection for one another. Of course, he also says in this verse, we're to honor one another, to bestow honor on one another, view one another as more important than ourselves, as we'll see in a minute. And so we show affection to one another. We really love one another within the family of God. So we forgive each other, we show affection. The Emin family stands for motivate. We want to motivate or encourage others to persevere in the faith. That's one of our responsibilities. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 3, 12, and 13, watch out, brothers, so that you won't be in any kind of you. I'm sorry, watch out, brothers, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God but encourage each other daily, motivate each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. We need to be encouraging one another to stay the course. We need to care about one another and the, the path that some people are on. Sometimes this involves, by the way, correcting each other. Paul said in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, and notice it begins with brothers or brethren, 
If someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. When we see a fellow brother or sister involved in something that isn't good, we want to come alongside and help motivate them to turn back on the correct path. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 8, 15, if your brother sins against you, Go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, he says, you have won a brother, which is what we want to do. And so we forgive, we show affection to one another. The M is motivate others. The I, and this one's a little bit different, is don't speak ill of others. This one's in the negative. Don't speak ill of others. In James 4, 11 and 12, we read, don't criticize one another, brothers or brethren, He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Do you see what he's saying here? He's he's saying that your focus is in the wrong place. If you're spending all your time getting above the law and enforcing it on other people, you're you're not focusing on just doing the law yourself. You're becoming a judge of it over other people. Verse 12 says, there's one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? We should not be focusing. And this one, by the way, is not in contrast to the previous point where I talked about lovingly coming alongside someone else. This is talking about not judging others, not speaking ill of others. In the next chapter, James put it this way in verse nine of James five, brothers do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. And notice Jesus is right there. Don't complain about one another. He's describing, I think, a situation where oftentimes when somebody offends us, instead of going to that person, what we do is we go to a third person. And we complain about this person to that person. We speak ill of them. And James says, don't do that. Don't speak ill of your brother. And so the F is forgive one another. A is show affection. M is motivate. I is don't speak ill. The L stands for love others by meeting their needs. Oftentimes, these two ideas are linked together. A way in which we show real love, tangible love to someone else is in meeting their needs. And so James wrote in James 2, 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? And John wrote in 1 John three seventeen, and this ties together again the idea of love and meeting physical needs of other people. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? That's a very sobering question. You know, how, how can God's love even be in us if we see this need here and we have the ability to meet it but we don't? Because God's love will be manifested in taking care of the needs of others. This is the primary way in which God wants to meet the needs of others within the family of God, is that we help meet needs that we see around us. And finally, the why in family stands for yield to one another. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word submit means to yield instead of getting, getting your own way or insisting on your own way all the time. Part of what relationships are about within the family of God is learning to yield to one another. 
A scholar by the name of Honer explains this verse this way. He says, spirit-controlled believers are to submit to one another willingly serving others and being under them rather than dominating them and exalting themselves. And the apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 2, 3. He said, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. In other words, the conceit of thinking you're more important than this person. But in humility, he says, consider others as more important than yourselves. Those of you that are married know the value of this yielding point because you know that what marriage is about many times is give and take. And oftentimes within the church, I have seen occasions where people have just stood their ground on various issues that were not important and neither was willing to yield. And therefore, there could not be peace within the family of God. We are called to peace. We are called to submit to one another. And so we are family. I encourage you to consider these different ways in which we treat others and ask yourself the question, how am I to apply this to maybe a situation in my own life? Some of you maybe need to forgive somebody and you realize you've been holding on to unforgiveness and this is like a a cancer within the family of God. Some of you maybe just need to learn to be affectionate with one another, really showing expressions of your love to other people. Some of you, maybe it's to motivate someone to persevere in the faith or to turn from something they're doing that's not good. For some of you, maybe it's to stop speaking ill of others, whether it's gossip or slander. This is not good for the family of God. Some of us maybe need to love someone we know has special needs and come along and help meet those needs that they have, the physical needs they have. And finally, some of us need to work on just yielding to one another. Now, for all of this to work, I think it's important for us to understand the importance of being properly connected with one another. Because a lot of these things, if we're not involved with other brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not gonna be connected. We're not even going to be able to express these things we've talked about here today. And this is why we encourage all the time for you to get connected. And this is why we're encouraging you to, to join an online group by January 25th. There are all kinds of groups out there for various uh, ages and, and, uh, and we just encourage you to get involved, get connected with a group of some kind. There's also the financial piece coming up. There are just various ways, but I would encourage you to work hard at staying connected. And finally, there are maybe some of you here today that need to become part of the family of God and I encourage you to turn to Jesus. In John three sixteen, we read, God loved the world in this way He sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's how we become children of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us. We thank you that we can approach you as a father, maybe the father that some of us never had, a daddy. And we're so grateful for that. And and I ask you to help us to, to see those within the family of God differently, to recognize we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And this means that we're to treat one another in certain ways. Help us to do that. Help us to become more and more connected, loving one another as you have loved us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.